We're going to take our Bibles this evening, go back to Mark, continuing our study of Mark. Mark chapter 3, picking up where we've, we've been going through. Uh, for those of you who have not been with us, we're just plodding our way through the book of Mark and just studying passage by passage, section by section, seeing how, uh, how Mark lays out the life of Christ and how he's, how he's dealing with some of the different issues uh, that arise. And we left off uh, a few weeks back at verse 6. We've, the first six verses of Mark really uh, are a transition point in the book. Uh, they move from, uh, they're transitioning from just the, the questions of interrogation toward Jesus, toward him as a rabbi, toward his, you know, what his disciples are doing and what they're not doing. Uh, and it begins to escalate just from the questions. Now it's going to move in chapter 3 to a bold escalation of conflict against Jesus. There's going to be accusations that are going to be made directly against Jesus Christ himself, him and his ministry. So it's going to get personal. It's going to get uh, pointed. And Christ is going to deal with some of that. And how does, how does he handle that? So what I'd like you to do for a second here is uh, do a little... Uh, if you notice in verse 7, it says, But Jesus withdrew himself and his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Uh, and then it's going to give you in verses 7 and 8 uh, a whole bunch of cities. So I put them in, in numbered order. Just take a moment, look through verses you know, 7 through 8. Number 1 is Galilee, so I'll give you that one. Uh, and then you just go right through and fill in the blanks there in the box there. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, right in order, and I'll see how you do. So if you're like me, you're reading through and you start reading through all these names and you're like, why, why, do, why do they put in names like that? Who cares? I mean, really? I mean, okay, I know every word is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable. But I started looking, I'm like, okay, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Idumea, you know, Tyre, Sidon. And you're like, why not just say a whole bunch of people follow Jesus and just move on? Because Mark's short with words. But if you, if you look through, there's the map of Israel, and you look through Jesus, right now he's been ministering in that number one region around Galilee, Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee is, is right there in the middle there. He's generally been in that area, and a good amount of his ministry is actually in that area of Galilee. So you have him ministering there, but look, look at how the word has spread. This is not, you have, you have Galilee, then you have Judea, which is down in the south, you have Jerusalem, which is the, the central city hub. It's not just, it's not just people out in the, the boonies. This is, you know, the metropolis of Jerusalem, so to speak. But you have, you have the capital city there. You have Idumea, which is far, far south Israel. You have beyond Jordan, which would be uh, terms you'll hear sometimes as Perea. You'll read Decapolis. Uh, you'll read beyond Jordan. But it's all those areas, areas over there like Syria and the other side of, the other side of uh, Jordan. Uh, to the, the, uh, it would be to the east or to the right side as your map as you're looking at it. You have Tyre. You have Sidon. Those, Tyre and Sidon are more than likely Gentiles, not even Jews coming down. Idumea would have been a combination of Jews and maybe Gentiles coming to here. But, but you get this sense when you read through it. We just, I'll just blow through the stuff like that. When I'm reading my Bible, just to be honest, a lot of times I do that. I don't pull the map out and say, oh, let me look and figure out where these are all at. It's just all oh, those are places I don't know. And, and I leave it there. But when you start looking at, at the growth in Jesus' ministry, the, the expansion and the, the explosion of it, Jesus was not a small local phenomenon. This wasn't like, okay, this just took place in Little Galilee, Capernaum, and everybody in Capernaum was really pro-Jesus. 
Mark takes a moment to just say, look at the expanse. Look at how far and far-reaching his ministry was. Some of these people were traveling 75-plus miles to go see Jesus. So let's go take a walk to Allentown to meet a guy that maybe we hope is going to do something for us. Let's, let's, take, our, let's take our sick and invalid son 75 miles, or let's go with a, with a clubbed foot or palsy or unable to walk, and let's travel 75 miles. You, you didn't just do this because of hearsay. The, the word of Jesus, the might, the power, the authority that he was, tra- was, was spreading far and beyond just this local area. And the problem with that is, is that when there's great growth and that quick expansion, there's going to be stressors that arise. There's going to be, there's going to be some of the, the struggles that come with the quick expansion of his ministry. And Jesus is going to face some good stress here, some intense stress with his ministry, with him personally, and in his life. How does he, how does he handle it? What does he do? When we think about ourselves, so if, you, if you were to put yourself in, in this situation or just thinking about quick fame, quick growth, what kind of stress, what kind of do you think would arise? Or situations do you think would arise with fame, with growth? What, what do you think, especially in Jesus' case? Lack of privacy, never alone. What else? There's always people. Always, always, always people. Which then is going to make you what? Tired. Absolutely. Some of you, you walk away from a day with a lot of people, and how do you feel? You're like, leave me alone. I don't want to see anybody else. But every time Jesus turns around, there's somebody else. He's tired. He's weary. What else? What's that? (laughs) That would never happen. You know, they, they do. They have these different agendas of what's going on and what they want out of it. You know, are, are they come, what reasons are they coming to Jesus? Is it just for the show? Is it because they really want to follow him? And, and these different perspectives that are, that are coming? What else? Any other thoughts? Gail? There's, there's a burden that's just a weight that's heavy upon, upon Jesus. There is, there is that burden that I got to do more. I got to keep going. I, gotta, I can't stop. I've got to do more. That, that potentially is there. What about politically? Is there a problem with, with expansion, quick growth, and all these thousands of people following him? He's making the religious leaders nervous. And do you remember in verse 6, who else is nervous with the religious leaders? The Rome, the, those who are following the Herodians, they're, they're following, they're pro-Herod. They're not, they're not pro-Jew, they're Jewish usually in nationality, but they really have a political bent toward Herod. The Romans, what happens if these, this escalates? Pilate, you know, or the, in the area, not Pilate at this point, but the, the Roman leaders, the Jews were known for these, these uprisings. Is this guy starting this new mob? So politically, there's, there's some issues. The Pharisees, back to the Pharisees, are they, are they jealous? You're, you're taking my, my people. We've talked about the last couple times. 
So there's some jealousy that's going on that he might face. And when people get jealous and they don't like what you're doing or the success that you're having or, you know, that you're rising up in the company, how do the people who want that job or want that position, how do they start, how they start treating you? What do they say about you? And, and we, we see those things even play out in our society here. What about loneliness? Even with all the people, can you at still times in a massive crowd feel all alone? Especially when your agenda may be completely different than everybody else's. So could Jesus be really battling even with potential some, some loneliness? And so all of these different stressors start, start taking place in Jesus' life and in his ministry. And how does, how does it go forward? You know, what do we do when we're falsely or maliciously accused of something? How do we respond? How do we react? What do we do when we're tired? When we just want away from people? When we don't want to deal with the struggles or the, the, the complaints or the, the, the accusations that are being made about us? How do, how do we handle it? Where do we find comfort? Where do we find rest? What does Jesus do in that situation where he's going to find all these struggles, all these accusations are going to come at him in chapter 3? And what does he do to find comfort and find rest in the midst of all of that? Because we know he does. He is trying to get away. Look what happens. He gets that political stress in verse 6 with the Herodians and the Pharisees are now teaming up to destroy him. And what does he seek to do? Verse 7, he seeks to withdraw himself, to, to pull back a little bit. And they go toward the sea. They're going to they're pull out of the situation a little bit. But the multitude from Galilee, they're going to follow him. And they're going to continue with him. And this whole group of people from all over the, the nation of Israel, they're following. So Christ's ministry escalates but so do the accusations against him and the stress around him. So what does he do? So let's look at the stressful situations. The first one is people, 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 and people. Okay, they're, they're all over. They're coming from everywhere. And that's what we just looked at with all those verses. His response, he pulls back a little bit. Then he goes on a little bit further though. Verse, it goes back to, Gail, you were saying like there's that burden. It's like he, he's pulling back, but he knows there's still that ministry to, to take place. It says he pulls back, and verse 10, for he still had healed many, insomuch that he pressed, they pressed upon him too much, and he had healed all those with plagues. So he was still ministering to people throughout. What's interesting to me is verse number 9. I, I, you talk about glossing over verses. So while they're walking toward the Sea of Galilee, there's this short conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. He says, hey, get a boat ready, because if it gets too crazy, we need to get out of here. And he has an escape plan out. And I was like, wait, why does Jesus have an escape plan? Everybody's coming to him. The ministry is coming to him. Why wouldn't he want to stay there? And he, he's looking to, to have this little escape plan to, to get out. But as I was thinking about it, reading and doing Christ isn't seeking to pull himself away from ministering to people, but he's simply seeking to do God's will. And what I mean by that is if he continues to minister to this mob, if he gets thronged and overthrown, or if beyond that, they start to try and escalate him as Messiah. They start to, which they've, they try to do multiple times, and that causes political problems, that causes more turmoil. His time has not yet come. So the, the, the escalation to that point of, the, the outcome is if they try to make him king, the Romans are going to step in. If they, they continue to push in, and the time, time of God's will was not yet come, so he's looking and saying, right now, the best thing is actually to go across the Sea of Galilee. So he pulls himself back a little bit, and, and he does that. Now, 
look at what happens in verses 10 and 11. We get this accusation that gets made. It's, it's a statement that's made, but it's one that, an accusation that can ruin your testimony. So this statement is made in verses 10 and 11. He says, he heals many insomuch that they pressed upon him to touch him, many with plagues, and the unclean spirits. And when they saw him, the unclean spirits is talking about, they fell down before him crying and saying, you are the son of God. So the demons are now crying out and saying, you are the son of God. Are they saying something true? Is he the son of God? Absolutely. So why not look and say, yeah, see, even the demons know this. They're going to say it out loud. Let them go. But Christ does not want dark, darkness, the evil ones, proclaiming his name. He's telling them, be quiet. Now, it's a little bit more stronger, stronger than be quiet. Okay, he's basically saying, hush. You, you, don't, you don't give testimony to me. I don't need your testimony. I don't want your testimony. You be quiet. And he's, he's silencing, silencing the demons at that point. And I was thinking about in our lives, do, are there ever times where you look and you're, it's going to sound bad, but you're like, I wish that coworker would not be telling them about Jesus Christ because you know that coworker's reputation. You know how vile they are, how, wake, how they cuss, how they tell stories, how they're, they're right in with everybody, but then all of a sudden they're like, oh, Jesus, I love Jesus. And you're like, the testimony, you're, it's like darkness sharing the light. And you're like, this is not. At this point, Jesus is looking and saying, hey, no, you're, you're not, I don't want you demons, publicizing, telling my name, carrying out my name. But he tells them to be quiet and, and to, to hush them which Mark does often, he highlights the silencing of, of individuals. So he, he silences the demons. He says, you're not going to make me known. You're not the ones to do that. We will do that. And then he falls into, and we've went through the next section a little bit uh, about a month or so ago in verses 13 and following. But Christ responds. He tells him to be quiet. He's struggling with all the people around. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And he's going to specifically take some time here and call his apostles. Now, so he goes to a mountain. He's withdrawing to the sea, not enough room. So now he goes to the mountain to get away. He's going to spend time in prayer. And he's going to ordain the 12 that they should be. And, and he goes, they're going to be with him. So what does he bring the disciples in to do? In the midst of, of stress, in the midst of a lot of ministry growing, he brings in the disciples to comfort him. I believe part of it is with the loneliness. The word is to be with them to be with him, to, for him to invest in them, but also for them to be with him. So in the, in the midst of the loneliness, he comes and he finds individuals who have this mindset and are willing to follow and are willing to do what is right. And he, he yokes up together with them. And then beyond getting others to comfort him, he also says in verse number 14, that he might send them forth to preach and that they might have the power to heal and to cast out demons. So he gets others to share in his ministry. So what is, when, when the pressures of his life and his ministry and his job and other things are happening, he looks to say, all right, what I want to do is I want to bring others who are like me that can share in the responsibility. Others who have a like mindset that I can, I can be with and, and um, rest in and talk to. So he highlights that dynamic and he's going to come back to it at the end of the chapter a little bit. But what does he do in sharing his ministry? He's going to send them out to preach. He's going to give them the power to heal the sick. 
and the power to cast out demons. Now remember, those were the things right there that this entire crowd was following Jesus for. And Jesus now looks at these disciples who have been making these decisions to follow Christ, to, to leave everything, and he's saying, I'm going to give you what I'm doing. I'm going to give you this, this ability. I'm going to teach you how to do this and give you this power. And I think that's a, it's a really important point, even when we start talking about discipleship and our, our investment into other people. And granted, we can't give them the power to heal the sick and the power to cast out demons. We don't have that. But we do have the ability to look and say, wait, my responsibility in discipleship is investing so that others who I am talking to and sharing with, that I'm sharing what I am learning and where I'm going and having those ministry mindsets and getting people to come alongside uh, with us. So Christ is looking and saying, okay, yes, these demons could ruin my testimony. Yes, there's this stress from a lot of people. But in order to help me in all of these areas, I'm going to bring some people around me that are going to be able to help me, that are going to encourage me. And he gives, he gives some interesting, you know, Mark takes the time to, to name all of them. And as the, the different apostles are named throughout the book, you start to see uh, their different names. Simon, who is surnamed Peter. Simon's always first. In all of the lists, he's the first one. And the last one is always going to be who? Judas Iscariot, yep. And what's interesting is they all also identify Judas Iscariot as the betrayer, the one who betrays. I think there's a really interesting dynamic. When you minister to people, when you pour your life into people, you have to understand that there is still that possibility, even with Jesus, that you can invest and invest and invest and you can still get stabbed in the back. You can still have those people who you have just poured your life into, and they turn on you. They walk away. Some of you have been through it with children. Some of you have done it with individuals in church where you have invested and invested, and they just they say, nope, and they walk away from the faith. Even with Jesus, so, so do we become jaded and say, I'm not going to do it? I'm not going to invest in people anymore? Or do we look and say, even with Jesus Christ, there was one who is the betrayer. He's the one who, he turned on Jesus Christ. It can't be something that dissuades us from investing into people. Sure, does it stink? Absolutely. Does it break your heart? Yep. Do you cry and shed tears over? Yep, we do. And we can, you know, for some, you can go through lists. You know people. We've been through that. But we still invest in people. Because even with Jesus Christ, there was still that, that betrayal. Other interesting things with the apostles. Um, Simon, the Canaanite. Um, does anybody have a different translation on that word, Simon, the Canaanite? Does anybody have anything different? The zealot. The, the word is really interesting. It's the, word, the word is Canaania, which a lot of times they've just translated as Canaanite. But he's a Galilean. He's not, he's not a Canaanite. The word Canaania actually means a zealous or passionate one. And it's a, it's a reference, actually, to his political bending. He was known, the zealots were people who would go through, they were assassins. They were called, Josephus calls them the dagger men. They had a little, a little blade called a sicari that they would use. They would actually have perfected a strategy of walking through a crowd, actually stabbing somebody and just continuing to walk through. And you, they wouldn't even know that they, they took the guy out. And they loved doing it to Roman officials. And they loved doing it to Jewish people who sided with the Romans. So, so take this guy, Simon the Zealot, and put him next to one of his new buddies, Levi, or Matthew, 
the, the tax collector who's basically sold his soul to Rome the whole time. And you get, the, you get these two different guys who completely opposite ends of the spectrum. What does that? It's the gospel. It's the transforming power of Jesus Christ that can take this bunch of guys with completely different interests, completely different backgrounds, completely different passions, completely different agendas, and the power of Christ and the power of the gospel completely transforms and gives it a unified perspective and agenda. And they're able to work side by side and minister together. Only the gospel does something like that. And so, so Jesus calls this, this whole group of people together, and they are now going to go out, and they're going to be his personal ambassadors to, to go out. So he calls all these people, verse 19, all these different men. The end of it says they go to a house. More than likely, probably Peter's house, back to the, the same house in the Capernaum region, and, and they get there. And then we get, we get another stressful situation that's going to rise. It's going to escalate. And the multitude comes again. And so they could not come as much as they could even eat bread. They couldn't even get, they couldn't get to the point where they could eat. There was no time. There was no, maybe no space. Maybe there was no bread because of the thousands of people and there just wasn't bread to eat. But, but they weren't there. Now, what's interesting is if you, if you do a synoptic study, what's called, you go look at the other gospels. Between verse 19 and verse 20, there's, there's something major that happens there. But Mark, Mark does not care. He does care. That, that sounds bad. He's not interested in portraying all of Jesus' teachings. He's portraying what Jesus did. He's very much about action. But if you look in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that little thing called the Sermon on the Mount, that actually takes place between verses 19 and 20. But Mark just says, okay, we went to a house. And then, oh, by the way, there's this great multitude. But the Sermon on the Mount actually occurs at this point. So now Jesus has come off the mountain. He has given this whole sermon on the mount. He's called these individuals. He's not able to eat. He's exhausted. All these things are starting to happen. And, and the, the, the ministry in his life is just, it feels tumultuous. It feels like it's going everywhere. And verse 21 says, and when his friends heard of it, the word friends are personal, close people. People that he probably grew up with in the region. Maybe they came over to, to the area where he was at. They heard about what was going on. They heard about him spending time teaching and all these different things. So they come over, and when his friends heard of it, they went out to, to grab hold of him, to take him. For they said, he is beside himself. So those of his hometown friends basically look and say, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's lost it. He's snapped. He's broken. We, we got we, we to pull him out of the situation. What prompted it? Was it right motives? Were they really worried about it? Was it because they live in a very much a shame culture? And so as, well, he's from our hometown, and if he keeps doing this, we're going to be known as the town that sent out the whack, the crazy guy who's just out there doing whatever and saying whatever, and we, we got to pull him back in. We don't know. But we know that they look, and they make this accusation. They make this bold statement that, that is hurtful. I mean, honestly, how many of you want your friends come out and say, don't listen to that guy, he's a lunatic? He's, he's, cra- he's lost it. She's, she's beside herself. We, we don't like it any more than Jesus would have liked it. And so this, this, this accusation is hurled out. Notice Christ's response in verse 21. There isn't one. And there are times where we just look and we know that situations, that statements are made, accusations are made, and we've got to be able to look beyond it. 
there are going to be times that we are going to be called lunatics. We're going to be called radical. We're going to be called fanatical. We're going to be called nuts. We're going to be called those crazy Christians. That's fine. We have to be able to look beyond some of that, even in those stressful times. And even there are times where, you know, you're at work, you're in a situation and people make accusations and you're like, it's not even, it's unfounded. I'm not even going to pay attention. That's easier said than done because we stress over those things. We hear about them and, and they cause angst. And we're like, well, what did they mean by that? And, and, and why are they saying, if they said it to her, what, well, did they say it to him? And what if it gets back to my boss? And I know it's not true. And so we can stress over some of those things. But there are times where even like Christ did, we, we, let, we let some of that, that go. Now, verse 22 jumps in, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem. So now we get people, people, and proud people. So we've had lots of people now we have lots of people and personal people are attacking him. Now we've got lots of people and now the religious elite, the, the proud, we've, we've got it all figured out. And you know, I don't like the way you're doing this ministry some, which we've already, has already been the case with Jesus. But they're going to step in now and, and they're going to deal with him. What's interesting is uh, Jesus doesn't seek out, seek out this man who's going to be healed. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it actually says that they brought this guy to Jesus. Whether the they is the Pharisees or whether the they is the crowds of people brought, it, brought, it, brought them to Jesus. They bring him this demoniac who is blind, who is a mute. So, I mean, it's not just, it's not just a, one of the three things. It's, he's, he's demon-possessed. He cannot see. He cannot speak. And Jesus is going to heal this individual. And as I was thinking about that, man, and even in, in Matthew 12, the, they're right before it. Jesus is talking with them, and they're, they're really seeking after signs. They want a sign. And my mind goes back to Isaiah where it's talking about the one who's going to come, you know, that the, the lame are going to be able to walk, the blind are going to be able to be made see, the deaf to hear, the, the dumb to speak. You know, and so here you got a demon-possessed guy who is dumb, who is blind, and Jesus heals all of that. It, you look and it's like, can this scream any more Messiah? It can't. I mean, it is like complete fulfillment of Isaiah. And even Jesus refers back to that Matthew 12 about Isaiah the prophet. So all of this is happening. And yet the Pharisees are going to challenge him. They're going to look and they're going to say, you're, here's your accusation that, that's going to come out. They're going to they're make this absurd statement. That, can, that is intended to destroy Jesus. He looks, they look and they say that you have come down, they've come down from Jerusalem and it says, he hath Beelzebub and by the prince of the devils cast he out devils. <clears throat> so the term Beelzebub there, there's, there's two different things that's really interesting about Beelzebub. Uh, the term often referred to as Lord of the Flies or even further, uh, the idea is Lord of the Dung Heap. So if they're using that exact term, Beelzebub, they're not using a very kind term about Jesus Christ. They're saying you're basically Lord of the dung pile. Yeah, that's who you're serving. That's what you're wallowing in. But uh, if you look at the Greek actually uses the word Beelzebul, which Beelzebul is actually the master, the, the, the term is master of the house or master of the kingdom or master of the temple or Lord of the temple, Lord of the kingdom. And as it, they often go synonymously together or close, closely tied together. But Beelzebul, Jesus plays off of that. Because if it, Lord of the kingdom or Lord of the house, 
Look, what, look how Jesus begins to answer them. Verse 24, if a kingdom's divided. Verse 25, if a house is divided. So he takes that term that they're using, and they're saying, really? He's going to take this absurd statement, and Jesus is going to respond. He's going to use logic, and he's going to use reason. He doesn't use a whole lot of Scripture here. In fact, you don't have a reference back to Scripture, which is not the common aspect with Jesus. Usually there's an allusion back, but he's just going to look, and this is an absurd statement. You guys are just trying to tear me down and, and destroy this. Let's just use some basic common logic here and, and deal, with your, deal with your question. So he responds to them. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's like, your logic is completely faulty. You, 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 Satan's not going to do that. And if a kingdom is divided against itself, so he uses these little parables here. Can the kingdom stand? The answer is no. If a house is divided against itself, can, can it stand? No. And if Satan rises up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. So he's like, if, if I'm really doing this in the power of Satan and casting out Satan and destroying Satan and we're divided against itself, then you've got nothing to worry about. You might as well just let me keep doing it and eventually Satan's going to collapse and we're all done. Your logic is absurd. And so Jesus just quickly takes them to task, walking right through it and saying, this, this doesn't work. He goes a little bit further and he says, can, can anyone enter into a strong man's house? And spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. So the fact right there that Christ healed the demoniac blind mute, he healed them. They're saying, you did this in the power of Satan, but he's like, what implied in that is that he defeated Satan, defeated the demon-possessed guy. So Christ is looking and saying, well, if, if we bound the strong man, then that means that I am stronger than the strong man. So why, if I'm stronger, if, if Christ is looking and saying, if I'm stronger than Satan, then why in the world would I want to serve Satan? And why do I need his power to, in order to cast out? He's like, I'm stronger than the strong. I'm stronger than him. I don't need to do that. And so Christ just looks and just uses logic to walk right through and say, it makes no sense what you're, what you're claiming. The house divided against itself is going to fall. I'm stronger than him. I don't need Satan to give me the strength. And they, they look at him, and they're, they're very upset. And Jesus is going to use this moment here, verse 28 and following, to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies where, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that blasphemes against the Holy Spirit hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. So we often, at this point, it's like, okay, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is that one sin that if I commit, it means I'm done? I can't ever be forgiven. But we know here and in Matthew 12, it says all, all sins can be forgiven and all blasphemies. But there's something here that is not forgivable. And we tie it in with John 14, John 16, and we tie it in with the rest of the New Testament and understand it really is simply, it comes down to, it is a refusal to acknowledge the work of God through Jesus Christ. To look and to say, I mean, they're doing it blatantly. They're like, nope, you're not the, you're not the work of God. You're not doing God's work. We're, not, we're rejecting you. We're going against you. But for us, as we look at it, it is, it is the one sin that cannot be forgiven is rejecting Jesus Christ. It is rejecting his gift of salvation. And as a person rejects that gift of salvation, it cannot be forgiven. It is a rejection of what Jesus Christ offers. And so we look at it, God's not neutral to sin. He either forgives sin or he punishes sin. He doesn't, he doesn't stay in the middle. 
And so if, if we commit this sin, this rejection of Jesus Christ, then I'm not going to be forgiven. And to not be forgiven is then to suffer God's wrath forever. And so that's what Jesus looks at. And he says, hey, this is where we're at. This is the struggle you're having. You as Pharisees directly is looking at them saying, you're religious. You do all these things, but you are rejecting what God is doing here. You're rejecting this, this plan that God has done. I think what's more interesting even than we always jump to, okay, let's figure out that. And we have to f- wrestle through what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But don't miss the hard-heartedness that's, that Jesus highlights here and that Mark highlights. Because hard-heartedness, what is, what's revealed here is a hard heart is something that call, calls good evil. They take what Jesus Christ is doing and what do they attribute it to? Beelzebub. They, they, re, they attribute it to Satan. They're take, taking what is good and calling it evil. And it's willful. A hard heart is willful. It's intentional. They are making a volitional choice to say we reject what Jesus Christ is doing. We reject the word of God. We reject what is being offered here. And they willfully, intentionally push it away. And as we look at our lives, we have to ask ourselves, are we hard-hearted? Do we find ourselves calling things that are good evil? Have we become callous through our lives? Oh, it's not that big of a deal anymore, and we sort of brush it off. Things that maybe we used to look and say, no, I can't be doing that. That's evil. Now, it's, eh, it's not. And is that a callousness in our lives and in our hearts? We're making those willful, intentional decisions. And they come to the point after Jesus just lays it on the line and says, I'm not the one doing it. You're blaspheming here. They look and they say, verse 30, this guy has an unclean spirit. He, they, they, they have just come to that inclu- conclusion. He is filled with Satan or filled with a, a demon. And the stress just exacerbates because what happens here? It doesn't end there. It says, then there came his brothers and his mother and standing without sent in calling to him. So there, he's in dealing with this. And now brothers and mothers show up. Like, hey, we want, we want to talk with him. Because he's been going for all this time. He's exhausted. He hasn't been eating. He's been being thronged by people. And so now there's this stress coming from family. And Jesus doesn't go out to talk with him. Was he being rude culturally? No. He wasn't required at this point with his age, with where he was. He was not required to go out and do that. In fact, the question was even, can he even get out of the house in order to be able to go talk? Because they couldn't come in. They had to actually send word through the people to come and get to him. And, and how does Jesus deal with this? It says, the multitude, behold, your mother, your brother are there seeking for you. Verse 33, he answered them and he says, who's my mother and who is my brother? Now, if I do that and my mom's in the area, she's probably going to smack me once she gets close enough. She's like, you know who your mother is and don't you ever deny it. Okay, that's, what's Jesus doing? He's going to highlight a truth that he wants to drive home. He looks in the next verses and he says, he looked round about them. Those which sat about them, a number of commentators believe he's talking about directly to his disciples. But the people around him, And he says, behold, my mothers, my brothers. Behold my family. It would be like if he was sitting here right now, he'd say, here's my family. I get that blood is thick. But Christ is looking and saying, here's my family. And he clarifies a little bit further. For whoever shall do the will of God, 
the same as my brother, my sister, my mother. He, he looks and he says, it's important to know who you can truly rest in during distressful times. Who can we go to? He's highlighting the importance of the spiritual family. Those who have the same agenda. Those who have the same desires. The same motivation. The same will. Because he says, who is going to do the will of God? It's not an obedience that... Uh, originates our relationship with God, but it is a sign of it. Those who are doing the will of God. Those of us who have the same common goals and purposes to say we want to be about doing God's will. And so as, as we look at it, and Jesus is facing all of these stressors, he brings in the disciples and says, I need you. I need you to do the ministry. Do it with me because I need, I need you with me. And he goes through all these accusations, all these struggles, and he comes to the end of the chapter and he's looking at these individuals and he's saying, who's my mother, my brother? It's those who have this kindred spirit. Where can I find comfort in the midst of the stress and the accusations? It's found in those with a kindred spirit. I think the direct relationship, and we, we ought to think about this as a body of believers. When there are people hurting in our midst, when they are going through the stresses of cancer, of a loved one going through it, of surgeries, of difficulties that we don't know about. This ought to be our place of solace, our place of comfort, not, not a place of gossip, not a place of bickering, not a place of frustration or getting our own agenda, but to look and say we are to have a kindred spirit of ministering together, of comforting one another, of encouraging one another, of getting in the relationships. And sure, are there going to be times that we invest in people in our body and they stab us in the back? It's going to happen. But that doesn't stop us from doing that. We have to be each other. We have to have each other's back. We have to have that kindred spirit that says, how can I pray for you? When we hear the prayer request saying, this is important. Let's be each other's comfort. Let's be each other's rock. Ultimately, we know Christ is the rock, but we're our family. We're, we're to bond together. So let's look for opportunities to encourage one another, to come alongside, and to really strengthen. Because if Jesus Christ, in the midst of all of his stress, needed some individuals to come alongside and comfort him, I'm thinking there's quite a few people here who could probably use the same thing. Because I'm not, I'm not as strong as Christ is but I could use it. You could use it. Let's look for those opportunities as we go to prayer, as we look for times to spend in fellowship, looking to comfort and strengthen one another. All right. Thank you so much. Let's pray.